Teeth. You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. chosen to work our way through the book of Revelation, last book of the Bible. And um, a few weeks ago, I said that one um, theologian put it this way, that Revelation is theology for visual learners. In other words, that the book comes to you as sort of like this crazy collage of images to reveal something about the cur- your current experience, which is namely this, that things are not as they seem. That is the central point of the book of Revelation, to communicate that your current experience, things are not as they seem. And so tonight, as we talk about images, um, we really do dive into what is going to begin sort of this domino effect of just one crazy image after the other. So uh, you can look at the handout in front of you or the screen behind me if you brought a Bible or a smartphone or some way to look at Revelation chapter 4. That's where we are tonight. I'm going to read it and then we'll discuss it. It says this. After this I looked, this is John the Apostle speaking, after this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes, in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they never cease to say... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is God's word for us tonight. Let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for uh, the chance to be together tonight. Thank you that you promised to meet us by your Spirit as we open up your word together. And so would you do that? Would you make good on those promises to attend to the reading and even now the preaching of your word. Uh, We are always desperate for your spirit to teach us, but especially when you read something like that that feels just 
confusing or, you know, crazy, would you help us? Would you open up our eyes, unclog our ears, soften our hearts, that we would really see um, that which is good and that which is beautiful and that which is true? Would you move our hearts towards you tonight? We pray all of this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, It was a few days before Christmas this year that uh, my wife and I got free tickets to Dollywood. And we took our uh, two small kids. We have a four-year-old and we have a two-year-old. And uh, it was awesome. We had corn dogs. Uh, Our four-year-old daughter, Zoe Kate, rode rides that she was having a blast on. But for me, it was terrifying because she's like spinning 600 feet in the air, and it's, you know, making me very nervous as a father. Our two-year-old son, we, we, I tried to let him ride, like, the kiddiest, wimpiest, like, easiest ride there was, like, just, like, sitting him in a chair that just kind of spins in a circle, and he's freaking out and wants nothing to do with it. Christmas lights were everywhere. It was just totally magical. Uh, but we were with some friends, and by the end of the night, they really wanted to um, take me on the Wild Eagle ride. Now, uh, you need to know, it's been about 10 years since I've been on like a real deal roller coaster. And as we're kind of waiting in line and I'm getting the stats and the data about what this is that I'm waiting in line to go do, I find out uh, you sit in a chair and they strap you in and your feet are dangling. So you're not like in a thing, you're like hovering as it were. Um, You start off with a 210 foot incline, 21 stories high which then you immediately drop 135 feet right after that. You go on four loops. It goes 61 miles an hour. So as we're waiting in line, I'm in line with uh, one of our friend's eight-year-old sons. And um, I am quite honestly becoming unglued on the inside. My heart is racing. My knees are knocking. I don't I cannot remember a time that I've been that anxious to gear up for it. So much so that this Sweet little eight-year-old is, like, sensing how nervous I am, and he's trying to encourage me, like, it's going to be okay. Like, I've done this before. It's fun. And so we, we get in the thing, and so it's finally my turn, and, and this is how nervous I am. You know, we strap the thing in, and I test it to make sure, if I pass out, will this thing still hold me? That's how terrified I am. So the thing gets going. I'm clutching onto the shoulder strap deals, and it starts, you know, kind of clicking up the, the 210 foot climb to the top and it starts to crest the hill and you kind of see on the other side like oh my gosh we're about to go down and so we go down and we're doing the loops and I'm screaming like my toddler son I'm praying to the Lord Jesus I'm seeing visions of him coming and taking me I think some bodily fluids may have come out and we get to the end it's a two minute 20 second long ride and we pull into sort of the station at the end and I'm breathing. What hair I have left, I think has been blown back. I'm, I look at this eight-year-old, and I'm like, that was awesome. That was amazing. And so we immediately go from there to Thunderhead, which is sort of like the other big sort of Mac Daddy awesome ride at Dollywood. And now... I have, like, this swagger in my step. Like, I'm like, we're waiting in line, and his, you know, the eight-year-old's six-year-old daughter. Okay, I clearly meant six-year-old sister, not six-year-old daughter. Let's carry on. Six-year-old daughter is with us, and she's the one that's kind of nervous now. She's in the cart behind me because she's six, and I'm trying to encourage her and be like, dude, it's awesome. You're going to be great. 
and we sit in the cart, and as the thing's now starting to go into this incline for this ride, I get everybody on sort of the, uh, the roller coaster to chant, hill, 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 and we go over it, and it's just amazing. And so here's the, um, here was the interesting thing that I thought about after the fact, is that's quite a shift that took place in me. Uh, I went from, like, knees knocking, I'm pretty sure I'm going to faint, to, like, Kanye, like, bravado, I've got this, I'm going to crush this. And uh, what, what was it that made for the switch, really? And, and I think, um, looking back, uh, it's amazing what a little knowledge uh, will do for your confidence level. Like, just a little experience with the wild eagle totally gave me this confidence boost of, like, I can handle anything else now. I've done this, throw anything else at me, and I got it. And and the reason I start this way is because I think that's somewhat along the lines of what this passage is trying to do, to really give you a shot in the arm of confidence. Because what it does is it takes you into the very center of the universe, as it were, the throne room of God. If you look at how verses 1 and 2 begin, it it, it says um, you have John and therefore us being invited into seeing the throne room of God with the expectation that that experience, that knowledge will transform you. That when you walk away from an experience with the throne room of God, you really will have confidence. You really will be able to look at the circumstances of your life and, and believe with assurance and conviction there's really nothing left to fear. I've been here. I've seen this. What is there to fear? And so as we sort of behold the throne tonight, uh, I want to look at it from two different angles. Uh, You have to see the centrality of the throne, and you have to see the activity at the throne. Those are the two points, the two kind of headings that we're going to look at tonight. The centrality of the throne, and then the activity at the throne. So first let's look at the centrality of the throne. And, And here's what I mean by that. You can tell that just this idea of the throne is kind of a big deal because of how many times that word just pops up in this little passage. Twelve times in 11 verses, John says, the throne, the throne. I mean, that word is thrown all up into this passage. There we go. Uh, But it's not just a big deal because of how many times the word is used. It's a big deal because of how this throne room is laid out. I don't know if you caught it, But the way that this scene, the way that this throne room is sort of structured is it's set up like a uh, a, uh, dartboard. Where in the very center, the bullseye is the throne. And then radiating out in sort of concentric circles, you have these these rings. Let me show you what I mean by that. Look at at verse uh, 3. It says that you have this rainbow encircling the throne as as far as the first ring out of the initial sort of bullseye. Verse 4, you see the second circle composed of 24 smaller thrones, which I'll explain what that is here in a little bit. Uh, If you go to verse 6, the third circle out is you have these four living beings that are like covered with eyes everywhere. I'll explain what that is here in a little bit. And actually, if you keep going into the next chapter, the next chapter is a continuation of this scene. And if you look at chapter 5, verse 4, you have a fourth ring of all these angels encircling the throne. In chapter 5, verse 13, you have this fifth ring of everything in creation encircling the throne. You put all of that together, and what does that tell you? It, it, the point is basically this, that the throne is the center of everything. The throne room of God is the very center of the universe. 
And did you notice, according to verse 2, that someone is seated on it? That there is a king ruling? That someone is at the control panel of reality, as it were? And so what we have here is we have this picture of God ruling over, ordaining everything in human history. We have a king at the center that every, there is no molecule in existence that is outside of his ordaining, governing, kingly, ruling plan and power. And here's why this is so um, absolutely important. Well, actually, let, let me bounce back real quick. If you look at verse 3, it's not just that God is powerful and in control. This vision also shows you that God is beautiful, that he's glorious. This is why in verse 3, he's, he's compared to Jasper and Carnelian. Now, I don't know what those are, but so I had to look it, look it up. And those are just very precious, beautiful, expensive stones. The best way that John knew how to describe God was that it's like looking at, you know, the diamond in an engagement ring. Just breathtaking, just beautiful, precious, brilliant. And so you put all of that together and... and What is the basic point? Here's the point of Revelation chapter 4. You ready? Here it is. That there is someone on the throne, that there is a king ruling over reality, and he is majestic, and he is glorious, and he is beautiful. That's it. There is a king, and he is ruling, and he is good, and he is majestic, and he is regal, and he is powerful, and he is beautiful. And here's why this is so important for you to grasp tonight. Because if, if you experience the world like I do, if you just read the news, if you um, even just are remotely uh, reflective about your own heart and your own life, it certainly seems like there's not someone on the throne. This is why um, people ask the question and frame it this way of like, where was God on 9-11? Where was he? Where was God when this thing happened? Where was God on, when Katrina happened? Where was God when this natural disaster happened? Where was God when this happened in my life? Because it certainly seems, from appearances, that either the throne is absent or that he's fallen asleep at the wheel. But remember that the point of Revelation is to convince you that things are not as they seem that there's more going on than just mere appearances. Because this vision shows you a picture of that there is, a, there is a king on the throne. He is ruling. He is ordaining and orchestrating everything that comes to pass. And so I also want you to notice three times it mentions God is seated on the throne. He's not like pacing back and forth, wringing his hands together, worried about what's going to happen. He is calm. He is in control. And everything that happens in human history is happening according to his plan. Everything. Now, I know that raises like a million questions. But I want to show you, uh, if you can just get this vision of the throne room kind of burned into your mind and into your heart, it will not answer all of your questions. But what it will do is it will transform the way that you go through life. It will transform the way that you experience your circumstances. And let me try to um, illustrate it this way. Not this past Christmas when we were at Dollywood, but the one before. Uh, so I guess my daughter was three years old then. Uh, we were about to tuck her into bed Christmas Eve night. 
But we wanted to do sort of the traditional thing. She's sort of getting old enough now where she kind of was becoming aware of what was going on at Christmas. So we set out cookies and milk for Santa. Although we didn't have any cookies, so we just set out this like giant chocolate pretzel thing. And so we set this thing out. Uh, we tell Zoe Kate, like, oh, let's see if Santa comes tonight and uh, kiss her. She goes to bed, and Catherine and I kind of stay up, uh, maybe set up some of the toys. And before Catherine and I kind of turn in for the night, I take, you know, like a big bite of the chocolate pretzel. So, like, half is still there. I drink, you know, most of the milk. So it looks like Santa has come. Which, spoiler alert, if you don't know about Santa. <laughs> um, so we go to bed. Wake up Christmas morning, Zoe Kate comes in, she's all excited, she wants to see if Santa has come, and we go into the living room, and there's all these toys, and this you know, princess kitchen that's set up, and she kind of runs past that, and she goes to the pretzel and the milk, and she's like, like, he came, like, he really came, and so she's getting excited, she's like, can I eat the rest of this? We're like, sure, it's Christmas, chocolate, eat it, it's awesome. And so she's eating this chocolate pretzel, and we're trying to steer her to show her, like, and he brought, like, toys and, like, fun stuff. And she's, like, kind of not really interested in the toys, and we sort of force her to, like, he brought you, like, we paid money for this, you need to open this. And we asked her, once all the presents are open, we're kind of chilling, we have her on video. We asked her, what's, what's the, your favorite thing that Santa brought you? The chocolate pretzel, is what she said. You just think as a parent, why did I spend all of that money and energy when I could have given her a pretzel and she would have been just as happy? But my point is, is that my sweet three-year-old daughter was clearly focused on the wrong thing. Clearly focused on the wrong thing. And I think that that illustrates the way that we live our life so often, is that we just focus on the wrong things. Really, in your life, you have a choice. What am I going to focus on? Am I going to focus on my circumstances, or am I going to focus on God? Because it works the same way like your camera phone focus finger button thing does. Like Whatever you tap kind of zooms in, and it becomes clear and front and center, and everything else kind of becomes fuzzy and obscure. And the same way it happens with your sort of spiritual perspective. If you zoom in and focus on your circumstances... That becomes front and center, that becomes pixelated, that becomes central, and God becomes fuzzy and distant and obscure and irrelevant. But if you choose rather to focus on God, seated upon the throne, it will not change your circumstances, but it will change the way that you experience your circumstances. Let, let me kind of try to connect the dots by giving you two examples here. First example is let's talk about stress. Stress. Uh, many of you, especially this week because of exam week, uh, are overwhelmed with the amount that you have to do, where you feel like there's not enough time in the day for me to do everything that I've signed up to do. You're so overwhelmed, you feel buried with responsibilities, exam week has hit, and if you choose to focus your attention on your circumstances, what does that do to you? It makes you uh, overwhelmed and stressed and bitter uh, and prickly and easily irritated? Why? What, where, what is that stress doing? That is basically you climbing up on the throne, trying to climb up on the throne to control your little ecosystem, to control your little world. And what does it do to you? It, it makes your life unravel. You become uh, brittle to criticism. You, you don't sleep. Uh, your, your life is a wreck. But if you choose rather to put God as front and center, for him to be central, focused. How does that change the way that you experience your 
busyness, what it does is it gives you a chance to exhale and to breathe and to rest where you can do your work and you can study hard and then guess what? You can take a break. And if you don't get the grade that you wanted, it's okay. Because God is on the throne and he's controlling everything. It, it, you see, it, cha- it changes your perspective. It puts things into perspective. It doesn't necessarily change your circumstances. You still have responsibilities, but it takes the edge off, as it were. Let, let's think of another example. Uh, another example would be anxiety. Uh, some of you uh, just are generally anxious about the future. Maybe it's because you're a senior and May is coming up and you don't know what's coming up after that. You don't have all the plan of what's coming up. Or maybe if you're not a senior, you're at least anxious about what's coming down the pike just in your future as far as what am I going to do with my major? Where am I going to live next year? Who am I going to live with? What are my summer plans? And that sort of anxiety of I I need to know this information and I don't have it. You know what anxiety really is at its root, spiritually speaking? Anxiety is a byproduct of pride. Because if you think about it, the reason why you feel anxious is because you've chosen to believe, I'm so wise that I know exactly how my life should unfold. And the reason I feel anxious is because I just don't feel I have the power to make it happen. At its root, anxiety is a result of pride. I know, I know how my life should go, I just can't make it happen. But don't you see, when you have God on the throne, when you can see through spiritual eyes, through faith, that there he is, seated on the throne... That's what kind of melts the, begins to at least melt the anxiety away. Because you can live in this sort of, I don't have all the answers, and that's okay because guess what? He's a lot wiser than I am. He knows how to run my life a whole lot better than I do. So I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to have the whole plan. I can sit in sort of this limbo land of this in-between, and it's going to be okay. It is well with my soul. So don't you see that this vision of the throne room of God, it doesn't change your... It doesn't change your circumstances, but it does change the way that you experience them. You have to see the centrality of the throne. But not just that. Secondly, you also need to see the activity at the throne. It's not just that the throne room is central, but there's something going on in this throne room, and what is it? Well, very simply, worship. From verses 6 to 11 Everything in the throne room just explodes and erupts with worship. So let's look at some of it in detail. But look at verse 6. Here's where you get a description of these things called the four living creatures. And uh, it says that they are encrusted with eyeballs. So like blinking eyeballs upon eyeballs all over these things. Uh, They each have six wings. One looks like a lion. One looks like an ox. One has the face of a man. One looks like an eagle. Not going to lie, this may be the weirdest thing in the whole Bible. I mean, this is the most bizarre. I, I wrote a paper on these particular things when I was in seminary, and I, and I came across um, 21 different scholarly interpretations of trying to figure out what in the world these things are. So I don't have a whole lot of confidence that I can tell you these are what these things are. Cards on the table, my best guess is that these are revelations sort of magical mystery tour way of symbolically representing very powerful and very important angels. The reason I think that is because if you look at the angels that are described in Isaiah chapter 6, as well as the angels that are described in Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10, they have the same description. 
So I think they're big, powerful angels. But either way, don't get lost in the weeds. Whatever these things are, they are strong, they are powerful, and they are awesome. And that is the right word to describe these things. And what are they doing? They are submitting to and giving glory and honor to the one on the throne. Look at verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And then what happens in the very next verses, once these creature things start praising God, this sort of sets off this domino effect. And the 24 elders on these 24 thrones erupt in worship as well. Now what are they? Well, there's a lot more consensus, scholastically speaking, on what these 24 things are. And here's what they are. Most scholars agree that this is Revelation's way of of saying this is the church. This is the whole people of God. And here's why. Because in the Old Testament, you have the 12 tribes of Israel. In the New Testament, you have the 12 disciples. Check my math, but I'm pretty sure 12 and 12 is 24. And so this is sort of Revelation's way of saying this is the collective people of God, every Christian that has ever lived or is living or will live, has gathered around the throne to worship him. And what does it say? Here's what they say. Verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That's the activity at the throne. You have angels and you have the church physically prostrating themselves before the one on the throne. They're giving glory and honor to the one on the throne. The elders are casting their crowns before the one at the throne, which means they're submitting to and giving all of their accomplishments and all of their resume to the one on the throne. Their lives are literally orbiting around him. And here's the principle that we've got to take away from this, is that your life will orbit around whatever you choose to enthrone. That's it. Whatever you enthrone in your life, your life will naturally orbit around it. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not tonight. Every single one of you has enthroned something. Something that you put at the center of your life so that you wake up each morning and your life literally orbits around it. Now, I think uh, if you could just sort of step back and look at yourself or look at kind of maybe UT as a whole, I think that there are three big things that UT students typically choose to enthrone. And they are these. Success, pleasure, and fame. Think about it with me. Uh, First, success. If you have chosen to enthrone success in your life, what that means is that you you wake up each morning and you say, uh, I'm living for for the achievements. I'm living for the accomplishments. I'm living for the big paying job. I'm living to get that internship. That is why I'm, uh, my life is orbiting around that because I so desperately want success. And if that, if that is, what is what you have enthroned in your life, what is the quality of your life as it orbits around that? Well, we've already talked about it briefly, but the quality of your life is you're busy, you're stressed, you're overwhelmed. So what if you choose to enthrone pleasure at the center of your life? Uh, Or maybe some substitute leisure or entertainment. Uh, What is the quality of your life as your life orbits around pleasure? Things that you sleep way too much. You watch way too much Netflix. You're on your phone too much. 
you burn up hours of the day gaming or you know with apps. Um, maybe your thing is you just go out of control on the weekend. Whatever it is, that's the quality of your life as it orbits around this thing called pleasure. What about fame? Um, you know, we all want our Instagram pictures to have a certain number of likes to them, right? I don't know if Twitter is even used anymore, but if you're still tweeting out there, you want every tweet that you throw out to be retweeted a certain amount of times. Now, what is that? Have you ever thought about that? Why is it that we keep checking? How many more you know, likes do I have on this? Why do we keep doing that? You know what that is? It's because we want fame. We want recognition. We want people out there to give us acclaim and glory. We want to be famous. You, you know, by the way, we've never left middle school. No one ever has. Once you, once you leave middle school, you never really leave because you and I so desperately want to be cool and popular. We so desperately want to be cool and popular, we won't make decisions about anything unless we know cool people are going to be there. I don't know if I want to sign up for Winter Conference unless I know some cool people are going to be there. Because what if I go and I'm stuck this weekend thing and there's nobody cool there? What does that say about me? We so desperately want success, we want fame, we want uh, pleasure, and those are good things. The Bible says those are good things, but here's the deal. Those are terrible things to orbit your life around. If you, if you orbit your life around anything other than the God of the Bible, here is God's honest truth. Your life will unravel, either slowly or quickly. But if you enthrone anything other than the God of the Bible, your life will unravel. Don't believe me? Believe me, let me give you a really silly example. Uh, but I don't know if y'all have ever seen the TV show The Office. Um, but do you remember when, which by the way, I'm, my goal is for this semester to incorporate an office illustration into every sermon because I feel like a northeastern, you know, Pennsylvania paper company is just, it just makes sense with the apocalypse. So um, do you remember when Michael Scott uh, kind of was, you know, left and kind of went into that dip for a little bit of like, I don't know if the office is going to recover. But they brought in Will Ferrell for a couple of um, episodes as, which is my favorite name in the history of TV, D'Angelo Vickers. <laughs> Amazing. But if you remember, D'Angelo Vickers comes in and he thinks that Andy is like the office funny guy. But he doesn't, he only laughs at Andy, not with Andy's jokes, but when Andy hurts himself. And there's this one scene in the break room. This is like one of my all-time favorite office scenes. Uh, D'Angelo Vickers comes in, and he's sort of kind of worn down from the day. And he's like, and Andy's in there, and he's like, come on, funny boy. Make me laugh. Make me laugh. And Andy kind of doesn't know what to do. And so he puts his hand in the toaster and, like, burns his hand. And then he gets this big tub of cheese balls and just sort of pours them all over himself. And D'Angelo starts kind of snickering at this point, and then he gets hot coffee and pours it all over his crotch, and D'Angelo's Vickers is starting to laugh at this point, and, he, and D'Angelo's like, drink some of the soap, eat, eat some of the soap, and so he's getting the, the hand soap, he's like squirting it into his mouth, and it's like this most ridiculous, amazing scene ever, but, but the, the, what that is illustrating to you is, okay, what is going on in Andy's heart, what is, why is he doing this? Here's why, it's because he is so enthroned his boss's approval of him, that he's willing to do anything to get it. So much so, he would sacrifice his dignity, hurt himself physically. And it's just this picture of his life is unraveling 
because he has so enthroned the approval of this person. And that's, you know, we laugh at that. It's a hilarious scene. But in some ways, it's a really sad scene because it's just a picture of us. It's just a picture of us caricatured and amplified. Because when we choose to enthrone other things, our life unravels. When you enthrone a relationship, you will cross sexual boundaries because you have so enthroned that thing. And your life is unraveling as you cross those sexual boundaries with that person just to get them to like you or just to stay in the relationship. Some of you have so enthroned being skinny that you are literally starving yourselves. And your, your life is unraveling as a result. Whatever you enthrone, if it's not the God of the Bible, your life will unravel. Now, we could just end here and just sort of leave you with this game plan of enthrone God, worship him more, orbit your life around him, and I give you a little bit of guilt on your way out, and we kind of all have a depressing night. Because guilt will never be a strong enough motivator for you to do this. Your failure and my failure to enthrone God, the guilt that we feel over our failure to do that, will never be a strong enough motivator to actually do it. It's kind of like, I don't know if you get these phone calls from your mom, but it's sort of like the passive-aggressive guilt trip thing that moms can do where they leave you the voicemail of, hey, just checking in, haven't heard from you in a while, and just checking to make sure you're still okay. And you're like... That really excites me to want to immediately call you back and connect with you. And it's sort of the same way. If, if only you had tonight was just, hey, worship God more, get it together, orbit your life around him, that's not going to make you enthrone him. Guilt will never be a strong enough motivator. What you have to do is that you have to find God as supremely beautiful and better and more glorious than everything else. How do you do that? Well, let me explain it all in here. Um, if you ever want to get... Uh, like an appointment with me, coffee with me one-on-one, it's really not that hard. You just text me, Facebook me, whatever. It's because I'm not important. I'll, I'll be happy to hang out with you. But if you want to get an appointment with um, the president, you can't just text him. Like you can't just like show up at the office and like try to hang out with the president. It's because you know he is at the center and there are layers and layers of like people and security clearance and checkpoints and furthermore, like... He's not going to meet with any rando off the street. You've got to have, like, credentials. And if that's the case with the president, how much more so is it the case with God, the throne room of God? We've already seen that he's inaccessible and he's holy, holy, holy. There's thunder. There's lightning. Like, nobody can just roll in. No sinner can just show up without credentials. You would be vaporized on the spot. So isn't it really interesting how this passage begins in verse 1? If you look at it, it says this. Come up here. Come in. What we have is this invitation, this kind of all-access pass to come. Come into the throne room. He's inviting people like you and people like me in to see the king of kings. And just to put some texture on that, he's inviting in people like you and me, people that are academically dishonest, people that just yelled at their parents, people that are addicted to porn, people that cannot stop their spending or their eating or their lying, people like you and me. How can he invite people like us in? The only reason he can invite people like you and me in is because because Jesus gave us his credentials. On the cross, he traded places with us. He said, I want to take your addiction. 
I want to take your sin. I want to take your shame. I want to take your secrets. Put them on me and have me obliterated. And in return, I will give you my credentials of perfect righteousness, perfect holiness. And so, yeah, you have an all-access pass to this king, but only because Jesus has given you his credentials. And you know what Hebrews 4, chapter 16 says, sort of along these lines? Here's what it says. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Look, you, you have to see the centrality of the throne and you have to see the activity at the throne, but you also have to see, really first and foremost, that this is a throne of grace. That you have access to it, but it, purely because it's been purchased by the blood of Jesus. And here's the deal. Once you see that God loved you enough to lay down his own life for you and for all of your issues and all of your junk, that's what begins to warm your heart. That's what begins to want to enthrone him, to orbit your life around him. Not out of guilt, not of slapping your wrist and saying, ah, bad Christian, i got to get it together. But out of joy. Out of joy because you begin to find him so supremely wonderful and better than everything else. Why would you want to run to the things that you and I run to when you have a God like this who has given you an all-access pass, free of charge to you at infinite cost to himself? So the invitation for you tonight is to behold the throne of grace. To behold it and to be moved by it. Let me pray. Father, would you so shock our hearts with joy and with wonder We just sang about it. Let us love and sing and wonder that you would do this for us. Give us faith uh, to see how you have given up your son in our place. And would that really move our hearts to enthrone you, to worship you, to say with the church collective and with these angels that you are worthy, you are holy, you are worthy to receive all of our glory and all of our honor and everything that we have to offer you. Father, so move our hearts, not out of guilt, but purely out of love. We would pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.